So nice to have you along with us on this 4th of July Sunday morning here on the west coast of Canada. Just a beautiful day, and it's uh, we're going to head right now to the opposite side of the country. We're joined on the line from Dalhousie University in Halifax by the food professor. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is with us, and he's written a report entitled Tougher Times Ahead for Grocery Retailers in Canada Amid a Demographic Pause. And let me just add one line before we bring Professor on where people will be working and how the economy will perform are some macroeconomic factors which keep our grocers up at night. But due to the pandemic, another factor will likely bring more sleepless nights to our grocers, our population growth. Sylvain Charlebois joining, joining us now from Halifax and Dalhousie University. Good morning, Sylvain. Welcome back. It's great to have you on the program again. Well, thank you. And now let's talk about this uh, this huge speed bump ahead for the grocery retail industry. Our, our population growth, or perhaps more accurately, lack thereof. Elaborate, please. Get, fill us in here on why this is, this is a concern. <laughs> there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, last year, grocers did make a lot of money. I, I think everyone mm-hmm. noticed. Uh, food service was closed, restaurants uh, weren't operating, or dining halls were closed, and so uh, everyone pivoted towards retail. In fact, at some point back in April of 2020, uh, 91% of all our money spent on food was spent on food in a grocery store. Typically, it's more like 65-35, so 65 percent of our food budget goes to food retail, 35 food service. Now, everything shifted towards retail and grocers did make a lot of money, but uh, I knew at the time that it it wouldn't last, of course, because the pandemic, uh, we would go back to our old ways. People would go out again. Restaurants would would open again. And uh, but now with COVID, not only that restaurants are now open, putting more pressure on grocers, but demographically things are pretty challenging for canada i mean we're not we're not uh, welcoming as as many immigrants as we used to the last couple of years and uh, and the and the birth rate is likely to drop as well as a result of covid from 1.71 which is uh, which is currently our birth rate to 1.51 by 2026 so there's going to be some if if you have fewer mouths to feed. That's a mm-hmm. problem for grocers. Indeed. Uh, let's talk a little bit though about. Uh, I'd like to go back if you don't mind. You were talking about typically in a typical non-pandemic year, we the split on the budget uh, in terms of the typical Canadian spend is about sixty-five percent of the of the dough on retail grocery, and the other thirty-five percent is on restaurants and other just food alternatives. During the pandemic, uh, you, you, as you point out quite accurately, uh, grocery retail grocers made a stack of money. Uh, what was the split uh, on the budget on that $1 spent uh, on food services at all? Take out those, the, the skip the dishes, the Uber Eats during the pandemic. I know it wasn't a big one, Sylvain, but what was what percentage of that of that dollar was spent on, on that aspect? So it did fluctuate and it still it still is fluctuating of course uh, throughout the country we're we're looking at lockdowns ending and and uh, to a certain degree people are starting to go out not everyone of course uh, but uh, the economy is slowly 
normalizing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so back in April of 2020, uh, the peak, I guess, for retail was at 91%. So 91.9. That was the fraction. Now, uh, as we speak, uh, our estimates uh, are telling us that we're probably at around 29.71. That's basically where we're at right now. And we're not not at 35.65. And we don't think we're going to hit 35 again by the end of 2022. Interesting. Now you're talking about the, yeah. the, the big, the big problem. And as you look down the road is reduced population growth. And, and of course, part of that is, is, is created or has been created by the pandemic as, uh, first of all, lots of, uh, part-time students and other people here on temporary visas went back home and we closed our doors. So uh, the traffic into the country has been limited to, to, to very, very little, a trickle versus what we used to, but the feds did commit to increasing the quotas for immigration. Is that going to make yes. a difference? Well, hopefully, I mean, we need, we need immigrants, immigrants uh, to populate this country. That's the, that's the reality, especially for bigger, larger urban centers. Uh, like I'm, I'm thinking about Vancouver, for example. I mean, Vancouver is, is going to be affected by what's going on demographically. We, we yeah. actually are, uh, we missed our target by over 200,000 people as a nation last year. And this year we are expecting the same. And so just because logistically it's, it's very difficult to move around the world. So if you're, if you're an immigrant, uh, you're looking at coming to Canada, there's, there's a, there are a lot of, uh, of challenges to, to move to Canada. So that's probably why we're going to have fewer immigrants and, and immigrants tend to really help grocers uh especially with uh with some specialty stores so that's that's really one thing for for urban centers you got that going on but also uh and i know it's the same in vancouver because we're seeing it in toronto and montreal and calgary people are leaving the city <laughs> they're yes. moving out because their personal address um uh, doesn't matter as much uh post-covid because professionally, some will a lot be allowed to work from home either on the part-time uh, basis or on a full-time basis. So that's mm-hmm. really the the changes that we're going to see within the workforce is absolutely going to impact grocery stores. So now, uh, yeah, grocers have racked millions in profits as they increased revenues during the pandemic. But numbers in 2021 are telling us tougher times are tougher. For our grocers, in other words, uh, they they made hay while the sun was shining last year. But it, is it an abrupt turnaround for them? Uh, it, I think it will. Here's another whammy for you: <laughs> prices. Um, you know, yeah. a lot of people are complaining about food prices, but I'll, I'll tell you what: grocers are paying more to get their food on on the shelf so we can buy it, buy the food that we need. Uh, restaurants are also hit by food inflation as well. We're looking at a 5% inflation rate this year and, and 5% is, is just an average. I mean, in mm-hmm. some, in some categories, we're looking at seven, eight, 10% and people are noticing, uh, from, from here in, in Halifax to, to BC. So that's, that's, and for grocers, that's never a good thing because if you're forced to increase prices and, and you shock, uh, consumers, they'll, probably go towards 
you know, retailers where bargains are are the policy for dollar stores, if you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Over almost 20% of Canadians now buy food from a dollar store on a regular basis. Can you imagine? Interesting. Yeah. 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 And, and do we know um, uh, what type of food? I, I would assume because dollar stores don't offer, you know, produce or any of that kind of stuff. But there's they do have food aisles, lots, you know, cookies and canned items. That, and so that's what we're buying then, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, when, when the economy turns, uh, essentially, consumers will trade down in, in many different ways. They'll trade down on brand, on branding, they'll trade down on categories, and, and of course, they'll, they'll trade down on quality. And so dollar stores tend to help them out. Uh, instead of buying fresh, they'll buy canned or, or frozen. That's really the reality. So right now, if you look at frozen, oh my God, uh, we're breaking records in Canada just because prices are very stable. If mm. people are looking for bargains, uh, frozen aisles, uh, frozen food aisles tend to be very friendly to, uh, to consumers on a tight budget. Canada is home to a little more than 15,000 grocery stores, and 19% of them employ over 50 people. That's one store for every 2,500 Canadians. With higher food prices and sluggish population growth, grocers will be compelled to revisit their real estate portfolios. This is just part of a report issued recently by our guest, Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, joining us on the line from Dalhousie University in Halifax. The report is entitled Tougher Times Ahead for Grocery Retailers in Canada Amid a demographic pause, and that pause is in immigration, and our birth rate is also lowering. There will be fewer of us shopping. So now you were talking, Sylvain, before the break about how shoppers, uh, many of us are already buying some of our grocery items at dollar stores. Now we have uh, this, uh, I don't know how many of us are aware of the fact that for every 2,500 Canadians, there's a grocery store. Some of them, uh, there are high-end grocery stores, and there are, you know, the the no frills variety uh, so as as the competition gets even keener which which grocery stores are likely to fail more would be more likely to fail sylvain yeah so going back to my comments about urban centers i actually do uh wonder about uh grocery stores that are located uh uh, in uh, in major urban centers, downtowns uh, like Vancouver and Toronto and, and Calgary, I, I suspect there'll be less traffic as a result of of people working from home most often. As soon as soon as you work from home more often, your your relationship with food changes completely. I mean, you're you're going to be cooking more at home. You're not going to vis- be visiting restaurants as often. You're not going to take breaks, coffee breaks with your friends as often. Um, so I suspect that a lot of companies will will uh, get employees to to work uh, physically at work from time to time. But uh, uh, based on, I mean, what has happened in the last eighteen months is, is that a lot of companies have actually realized that they can actually make a lot a lot of money even if their employees are at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're seeing with financial results over the last few weeks on Bay Street and Wall Street, a lot of companies are wondering, okay, so if we're actually making a lot of money, we can actually save on costs. Why don't we actually look into this more seriously? And so if you work from home, 
your cafeteria will be your kitchen more often and mm-hmm. yep. you'll be consuming from retail more often and you're not going to be driving downtown as often. And so you're going to be spending more of your retail uh, money uh, for your food budget, coming from your food budget close to your home. Interesting. A few months ago, you wrote a piece called Why Canadian Grocers Need a Code of Conduct. And I want to try to join to connect the two dots. Today's discussion (laughs) about the future of grocery retailers, which is going to be challenging for some, and why Canadian grocers need a code of conduct. Is there a line that can be drawn? Will those grocery stores, for example, who do prevail... Uh, be, will will part of the reason be because of the way they conduct themselves? I think there is a connection for sure. Uh, it's a little complicated, you know, for uh, for conversation at seven o'clock on Sunday morning. But I'll, I'll keep it as simple as possible. <laughs> this this code of conduct is is meant to address this huge issue related to supply chain bullying. You see, grocers in Canada are are in control. They basically dictate what we eat. What we don't eat, uh, people don't realize that that in order to do business with Sobeys, Loblaws, Walmart, uh, Costco, and, and Metro down east, you need to pay them, and mm-hmm. uh, and fees are going up. So a lot of processors are actually disadvantaged right now as a result of what's going on with these fees. But the other thing is that independent grocers are also be left behind because they can't bully as much. Uh, their suppliers as Walmart is doing it or, or Loblaws. So that's why we, 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 we need this code of conduct in order to give a chance to smaller grocery stores to survive. And I'm thinking like you have a lot of them in BC uh, sure. that are struggling right now, just because the larger chains can actually make more money by just bullying suppliers and they can't. Ah, okay. So at, at then down yeah. and boiling that down to the impact that might have on the typical grocery consumer, Sylvain, how does that work yeah. out? So, so let's say that you live in Burnaby or you live in, in, in suburb Vancouver or you live in Kelowna or, uh, even Prince George, any, anywhere in BC. Okay. Uh, the fact that there's no code of conduct uh, will actually put a lot more pressure on independent grocers in your area uh, just because they can't compete with the larger stores. If you don't implement a code of conduct, it means that some some locations uh, like Kamloops and, and, and Kelowna will basically only have big box stores and that's it. And wow. I think consumers want variety. They want more, especially in light of the fact that they may actually be working from home more often they just want more choice within five kilometers away from their home ah okay and that's basically why i think it's important to establish some some peace within the supply chain because right now it's pretty rough most consumers don't see it of course when you walk into groceries you can't tell that there's a bit of a war going on but there is between processors and larger chains and and independent grocers are paying the price and how does how I've only got a couple of seconds left, but again, just trying to understand how how to connect those dots. At, at what is that? What is the where does the independent grocer lose to the larger competitor with a deeper pocket? Well, let's say you're dealing with a supplier like Procter Gamble. Well, you can't get the same pricing just because uh, Walmart and Loblaws can basically charge more fees. 
you see? Got it. And so that's why they independent grocers, smaller retailers can't remain competitive. So they either need to sell or they close. And that would be unfortunate for a lot of consumers in, 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 in mid-sized towns around B.C. Something to look to and something to be aware of as a, it's coinciding, of course, with escalating food costs uh, from a consumer perspective. And you're talking about tough times ahead for grocery retailers. I would think hand in glove with that tougher times ahead for Canadian grocery consumers as well. Yeah, no, exactly. So you have to be careful out there. I mean, things, uh, things are going to get tricky for a while. Uh, go to more than one place. Going back to variety and choice, you want to go to more than one place. You'll be amazed by the amount of food products that uh, are actually discounted, but they're, they're not necessarily advertised. You walk yeah. in and you may actually see discounts at 50% unannounced. So take advantage Ta- of it. Nice to have you with us on this Sunday morning, the 4th of July, a beautiful day here on the west coast of Canada. As John mentioned moments ago in the sports cast, the Vancouver Whitecaps are in action. They play Big D, that would be Dallas, and uh, will it be another dramatic finish? Fireworks on the 4th? Corey Basso is with us. Corey is the play-by-play guy for the Vancouver Whitecaps on AM 730. That game goes this afternoon at 530. Corey, good morning. Sterling Fox, the Silver Fox. Happy Sunday to you, sir. Well, thank you very much. Are you expecting fireworks in Dallas? uh, The team needs a win, and uh, uh, they're going to be playing pretty desperate uh, soccer today? Uh, I wouldn't say desperate, but I think they'll look to continue where they picked off um, from the Seattle Sounders result, which some pundits may have said, oh, it's just a measly point. But I thought it was a good performance for the Whitecaps after having gone uh, five without getting any points. Granted, that one point didn't do them a ton of favors because every single result that could have possibly gone against them last weekend did, and that includes right. FC Dallas, who jumped them in the standings as well, uh, leaving the Whitecaps rock bottom with Dallas just above them. Uh, so they'll want to continue getting more points, and Dallas has not exactly had a champagne start to the season either. They huh. did win their last time out against New England, which are the top team in the East, so kudos to them for doing that uh, last weekend. But prior to that, they went six winless themselves, so they're on a bit of a wobble. So, yes, Sterling, I do think we're going to see fireworks here to, uh, tonight, not just July uh, July 4th style in the skies for American celebrations, but I think it's going to be a fairly wide open game here today, so expect goals. And you're right about that point against Seattle. Of course, Seattle and Vancouver arch rivals forever in a day, and a point against Seattle is a hard-earned point, and that's a good, uh, that's a good point to make this morning. Uh, and hopefully, uh, that momentum will carry forward. Yeah, absolutely. And anytime you can go against the top team in the league, not just in the West, they still remain undefeated Seattle and, and really looked apart. I thought the Whitecaps was some better luck on the day. And yeah, the Sounders did miss some chances, but so did the Whitecaps. I thought three yeah. points were there for the taking. So perhaps come the midpoint of the season or the end of the season, when you're looking back on points that you could have possibly tallied, you might look at that Seattle Sounders game, but you can't take away the, the effort from the lads because they, they looked the part. They weren't played off the park. It wasn't like they were defending for their lives for, for 90 plus minutes. They, they had a game of it as well. And I think if they take that same approach, that same attitude against FC Dallas, it's actually going to be less hot in Dallas this weekend than it was in the cauldron that was Seattle. I think it's 31 and partly cloudy tonight in Dallas where Last weekend, it was smoking hot. It was 37 on the AstroTurf, so didn't That's do the right. Whitecaps any favors. No excuses, but I think the weather might behave for them tonight down in the uh, the Lone Star State, Sterling. 
Interesting stuff. Now, Corey, I just wanted to ask you, just looking ahead a little bit, because they're 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 in Dallas tonight, and then they have three home games, and of course, home games for the Vancouver Whitecaps right now means suburban Salt Lake City. Uh, when do you think? Because now we're in phase three. We're only three or four days in, but by George, Corey, we made it to phase three. The BC Lions are already talking about 50% capacity for their opening game of the CFL season, which is going to be in mid-August because they're going to open with a couple on the road. So what uh, do you hear from the Whitecaps front office with respect to possible uh, uh, dates for a real Vancouver home game at BC Place and and featuring what? Because the Lions are looking at 50% capacity, which would mean a maximum of maybe 13,000 fans. What are you hearing from the Caps office? Well, I haven't heard any dates chiseled in stone just yet, Sterling, but I can assume that I think August or an early September return is definitely on the cards because you're right. And I was even surprised this weekend. I was walking into grocery stores and there were people without masks. There were You could enter on both sides of doors and I, just a, a light went off my head. I said, my goodness, we're almost back to you know some, some semblance of normalcy here. So yeah. yes, I think August and September is... Once again, I don't have any, any facts in my back pocket. I'm not breaking any news here. But I think mid, right. early to mid-August and maybe on the late end um, September is definitely, definitely I think, possible. And when you look at the precedent that the Lions have set with BC Place, an open-air stadium with a retractable roof, I don't yep. see any reason why the Whitecaps can't follow suit that way. So I think it's, it's come at a really perfect time, and it's come at a time where the Whitecaps might desperately need it because uh, no disrespect to Sandy, Utah, but it is kind of like setting up a, a tent on, on a very nice field for yourself camping-wise. They've kind of been camping out in Sandy, Utah for a little while, and I'm sure they're dying for some home cooking in Vancouver, not just for the, the home supporters, but just to get back to your locker room, to get back to your bed, to play on your field. It does oh, make a sure. difference, Sterling, in sports for sure. And I know sometimes in hockey it can kind of go different ways because a lot of the stadiums are, are quite close together, but Vancouver's they're, they're, it's a different structure. It's a different stadium. It's a different atmosphere, and I think that'll help them um, certainly when they do get back to BC Place, because they do need to start stacking them some points. It's coming up that time of the season now where uh, time is of the essence and you do need to get points here and there against clubs, especially in the West. So the Whitecaps need to get their business done this weekend and hopefully with one eye looking forward to BC Place. Excellent stuff. Well, Corey, have good have a good time this afternoon. You always do. You're so fun <laughs> to listen to calling the games. Uh, and it's it's the young team, two young teams, should be pretty explosive stuff and a whole lot of fun. Thank you for doing this. It's always a treat to have you jump in with us. And uh, keep my fingers crossed, and I know you already have them, uh, for getting, uh, getting those loud, crazy Whitecaps fans together with their team in BC Place ASAP. Have a great game today. Yes, sir. Colin Miller and myself, 4.30, the pregame on AM 7.35.38, the official kickoff. Thank you, Sterling. To have you with us this Sunday, the 4th of July, it's uh, an interesting story we're going to take apart in two sections in our next half hour. The federal government says it will close several commercial Pacific salmon fisheries here in British Columbia and the Yukon beginning this season to conserve fish stocks that they say are, quote, on the verge of collapse. The fisheries department said in a recent news release that 79 of 138 commercial and First Nations communal fisheries will be affected, which amounts to about 60 percent. The minister, Bernadette Jordan, saying uh, those closures will reduce immediate pressure on the fragile stocks that have drastically declined. Now, obviously, those who are going to be most affected by this are commercial fishermen, and we'll talk to the United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union in just a few moments. But on the other side of the coin are conservationists like the Watershed Watch Salmon Society. We're joined from that group by Greg Taylor. Uh, Greg, good morning, and uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking some time to be with us today. 
Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, you're a, you have a, a strong background in commercial fishing. You, you have, uh, an, in your career, in your lifetime, managed a fishing fleet, haven't you? Yes, indeed. Uh, I started out last remaining isolated cannery in B.C. in uh, uh, 1980. So I've been working through and ended up as a vice president of a seafood company before uh, moving on and working with environmental and First Nations. So you have some appreciation, okay, you have a deep appreciation of the impact this closure might have or is going to have on commercial fishermen. I think it's heartbreaking. Uh, it is. It will eviscerate uh, most commercial fisheries and, and fishermen, and it not only ends a business, uh, uh, a, a way of making a, a living, it ends, ends a lifestyle, it ends of... Uh, of part of our history it it's really it really is a damaging uh, thing to not only the fishermen but to us as bcers well very much you know if, if you go back to the history of british columbia and it's mining fishing and forestry that's what really put us on the map and has paid the bills for the first 150 years uh, the fishery not as essential or as a large a contributor to the economy as it once was greg but it's still a player and it still matters big time doesn't it it certainly matters. It certainly matters to the people who are involved in it. But we always, always think of fishermen, and we should think of the fishermen. But you have to remember, there's a whole pile of people behind the fishermen processing the fish, mm-hmm. uh, selling the fish, trucking the fish. I mean, this is uh, still a fairly big business with a lot of people involved in what is, to them, it's beyond just making a living. It, it's, it's really an important part of who they are as people, and as part of our coast, and like you say, the legacy and the history of our coast. Let's talk about the closure. It was inevitable, some say, and I would I would imagine you would be in that corner, but Greg, 60%, is it enough? Is it too much? Uh, talk to us about that percentage that was selected. Can I first start and say about the inevitability of it? I sure. don't think it was ever an inevitable. I think it was years of... Uh, uh, senior department managers not implementing their own policy. I think if they had implemented their own policies, which are internationally well-respected policies, we wouldn't be in this place, hmm. and we wouldn't be faced with this uh, very hard, difficult decision. Um, in terms, so that's that's step one. Uh, I think it's probably an, it is a necessary step uh, right. now. Uh, because of that lack of uh, due, due diligence on the part of the department over the past couple of decades. But here we are, and it is the right decision. However, uh, in terms of the percentage, you know, the percentage you look at actually go through, as, as you say, I'm very experienced in this, the fisheries that are being closed. It removes mm-hmm. the, the core of the commercial fishery. So, yeah. It's, is it enough? Well, I don't, it's not enough. I mean, it's going to stop some of the bleeding, but is it going to cure the problems? No, it's, it's going to start, stop some of the bleeding. Um, one of our, for instance, uh, our Chinook are the most endangered uh, populations we have, our Fraser in East Coast Vancouver, Chinook. All those fisheries still stay open, and those are okay. mainly recreational fisheries, right? They're not commercial right. at all. So, yeah, it's going to start to stop some of the bleeding. It's going to stop some of the problems. And 
I think it may offer us an opportunity to do a reset for commercial fishing and look at maybe finally look at the way we can do it better so that maybe we can re-engage with commercial fishing in a more sustainable way. I don't think the minister had a chance. I had had an option. Her she, her staff wasn't doing the job, and I think maybe she's looking at uh, having a reset here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those, uh, and, and, and just for the benefit of those who do remember the Mulrooney era, Greg, and it wasn't that long ago, this is the same DFO that during that time managed the cod fishery off the East Coast right out of existence. So with that in mind, what policies of their own making have they ignored or underachieved over the past 20 to 30 years that have put us in this predicament today? You said they've ignored their own policies, and that's one of the big reasons we're in this pickle today. I would say the major one, that the 2005 uh, wild salmon policy, was, uh, it was the Liberal government back then brought it in, has never been implemented. It is it is seen as the standard by which you recover and conserve and fish um, uh, salmon. It has mm-hmm. never been implemented since ni- 2005. And that was the guiding policy for salmon and salmon management. The... Um, so one. they brought it, they, they went to all the trouble of creating a policy, which actually made a considerable amount of sense, and then never bothered to implement it. That's right. Okay. You know, the latest initiative has been a plan to plan to initiate, to operationalize the plan. And that was a couple of years ago. That's how crazy it, it was. Um, the other ones are I would point to is the monitoring and compliance panel in terms of fisheries. One of the things the uh, minister pointed out was the bycatch issues. Um, They have a national policy uh, for guiding that and what kind of uh, monitoring should be in place to protect the species that are caught co-migrating with the target species. That has never been implemented. Neither is uh, bycatch policies. Whole raft, there's a whole raft of policies, none of which have been implemented. And uh, that is if they had had those in place, I don't think we would have been, no, I know we wouldn't be in this position we are today. So they've also announced some new money for hatcheries. Is that going to offset the problem to a certain extent going forward, Greg? No. Um, I think it will complicate the issue. Um, The hatcheries are, uh, that's a huge subject unto itself, um, in that uh, hatcheries, in terms, if you look at it at a global perspective, well, at least a North Pacific point of view, adding more hatchery fish adds fuel to the fire in terms of wild salmon uh, recovery. Uh, I mean, preventing wild salmon recoveries. But even locally, what it does is put more pressure. You put more hatchery fish out there. You want to fish them more. And what mm-hmm. does that do? It creates more pressure, uh, fisheries pressure on the wild populations you're trying to recover. So there's a whole bunch raft of just those kind of problems, but then there's, from a science point of view, there's all sorts of genetic problems with hatchery management. Strain is a big problem. West coast of Vancouver Island now, you can hardly find a stream with wild salmon in it anymore because of the strain Mm. from Robson's Creek hatchery. So there's a whole raft of problems associated with hatcheries. That's not not the answer. But just to go back to the commercial fishing fishermen for one point, and I think a key point is the minister said that and saying we're going to we 
This is a one-time deal. There's $647 million for salmon conservation and recovery. We cannot allow the department to take compensation or licensed retirement funds out of that money. Because if you do that, the last time we had a a major buyback, like you said, I was leading industry through it, uh, ended in 1997, and we spent $450 million in 2021 dollars uh, on that licensed retirement. So you can see all of a sudden your $467 million, which is already overcommitted, and you start taking tens or hundreds of millions of dollars out of it, you're eroding any opportunity we have to recover wild salmon. Yeah. And the other side is, if you t- try to do it on the cheap, then then you're not being fair to the commercial fishermen you're 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 letting go. It's no fault of their own. They didn't overfish. What they're being affected by is climate change, cumulative impacts of harvest, uh, forestry, land use, with climate change on top of it. It's not their fault. They didn't overfish. They deserve right. compensation. It's, it's not their fault. They're in this place. Sterling Fox with you. 17 degrees now in the morning sunshine. We're talking with the, uh, well, we're talking about the closure, the decision by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the Minister Bernadette Jordan to close 79 of the commercial fisheries here in British Columbia. We spoke with uh, Greg Taylor moments ago, and now it's time to take a look at this impact on the uh, fishing fleets around British Columbia. Guy Johnson is United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union Secretary Treasurer. Joining us this morning from Vancouver Island in the Duncan area, Guy Hi, good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, it's uh, it's uh, some pretty bad news, and I'm quoting now uh, one of the your union colleagues who says, quote, the abruptness of this announcement from Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the lack of transparency for how these specific disclosures were decided have blindsided harvesters. Blindsided being the operative word there. Did you have any idea this was coming? No, none at all. We've been fishing all spring for prawns and octopus. We just got back and we're switching our boat over to go fish salmon. We were talking to our local area managers about the upcoming season and they were mm-hmm. explaining what would be happening. And then all of a sudden, uh, Thursday at 11 o'clock, everything that we had planned was thrown out the window. No fisherman was consulted. No First Nations community was consulted. And None of the DFO's own biologists were consulted or their area managers. It was um, policy people in Ottawa who made this decision with no input at all from D.C. And it sounds like to the surprise of some of their employees here on the West Coast. Totally. We phoned our managers after we heard this and they said, sorry, we heard about this about a half an hour before you did. So they had ah. no idea, no biological reasons why these uh, closures are happening. Uh, and, yeah, but they, they are. And the communities on this coast, both First Nations and non-First Nations, are just really... Yeah. So, Guy, what's what's the what's the what are the options here? We were talking with uh, with Greg Taylor a few minutes ago, and he talked about license retirement programs. Basically, the government compensating uh, fishermen who are, are going to be so deeply impacted by this, it, it, they might as well just stop fishing, so you can retire your license and get some money back. Uh, they have a budget of s- close to six hundred and fifty million dollars. Greg says he hopes that doesn't include retirement for licenses because. It 
it'll detract from the urgent uh, money needed to spend on restoring the salmon stocks. But what about that retiring, just getting out of the business guy, because now it's, it's, it's darn near impossible to make a buck. Well, I, I guess a couple of things I'd say. Remember, there's a whole variety of species that we fish on this coast. Sure. Salmon is one and a real key one. Um, I will continue to, to fish. It's obviously really impacted me in terms of um, salmon fishing. But you also got to really look at I would disagree to some extent. If it was as simple as removing fishermen to restore salmon, um, we would have major runs. 70 to 80% of the people I grew up with fishing have been already bought out of the industry, and it hasn't uh-huh. turned salmon around. Since the uh, early 1990s, we have not fished in Rivers and Smith's Inlet, which are major sockeye producers, um, and the runs have not turned around. There's other things that are going on, and I think that is where the real emphasis has to be put. I think all fishermen and all First Nations communities want to see uh, a rebuilding of the, the salmon stocks on this coast. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And when you really think about it, salmon, much more so than any other species that we fish, really exemplify the coastal rainforest um, ecology uh, environment. And the reality is the coastal rainforest environment is under deep, deep um, attack. You know, we... Now you're talking climate change here, right? I'm talking climate change. We can't have it both ways. And it's not just that the government's bad. It's all of us. All of us want to have it both ways. You can't build a pipeline that is going to pump a huge amount of more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and say that you're honestly trying to do something about um, rebuilding salmon stocks. The two are just totally incompatible. You can't spend $4 billion buying a pipeline and another however many billion to build it and then say, oh, then we'll spend $640 million to rebuild salmon stocks that have supported human life on this coast for 10,000 years. Mm. It's just not a reasonable comparison at all. You can't um, do spend that tiny bit of money and, and pretend that you're going to repair the uh, damage from industrial logging for the past hundred years. Right. I, you know, I think our government has to have some respect for the communities on this coast, for the First Nations on this coast, and talk to them about what could be done to rebuild um, these stocks. You know, I was reading about how um, the BC Forest Fire Service is um, talking more with First Nations about how they manage um, forest fires and what they do to prevent them and learning from that. And I think a lot of that could be done around the salmon, but unfortunately it's not. They maybe well-intentioned people in Ottawa, but I'm sorry, they haven't spent um, their whole lives involved with fish and understand the same way First Nations or fishermen understand. Sure. 
So, Gary, I'm sorry, Guy, um, what then uh, in, in the short term, uh, yeah. uh, this, this, is going to, this is going to take effect and it's going to affect directly how just even over the next, say, six months until the end of this calendar year. Do you see uh, some people just, uh, uh, I was going to say tying up the boat, but you're quite right. Most fishermen have multiple licenses and, and fish for any, any number of species. But do you see salmon licenses being returned? I'm sure that will happen because there certainly is a portion of the fleet that just fishes salmon. And Mm -hmm. those people are going to be really dramatically impacted. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, First Nations communities or FSC fisheries are affected. That's, you know, they're really impacted with that. And I think, yeah, you're going to see coastal communities like where I live in Couch and Bay, you know, when I first moved here, there were six fishermen lived on my road. I'm the last fisherman living here. Hmm. Um, you're going to, you know, there's just going to be that many less fishermen. We've got a sustainable resource, but you do have to take care of it uh, in order to be able to harvest from it. And that's not what we're doing. And that, right. you know, that really is the answer to this is we got to take care of the resource. And Ottawa needs to stop making policy in Ottawa and maybe pay a lot more attention to what's going on in the water, to say nothing of on the ground in British Columbia. Guy Johnson, thank you very much for joining us this morning, sir. We do appreciate your time and your perspective. It's a, it's a pretty dramatic move by the feds, and we appreciate your sharing how it's going to impact you and people like you. Thanks very much, Sterling. Well, we're talking about Imagine Van Gogh next. And before we meet the artistic director, our contributor, Jean Jang, had the opportunity to do a walkthrough of the Imagine Van Gogh exhibit and put together an audio feature. And here's just a little taste of what you can expect. This is, in one word, incredible. As you walk through the gallery... It comes to life. I mean, we're talking 50-foot walls. Maybe I'm a little exaggerating there. But completely immersed with moving images of Van Gogh's work. And as you can hear, lovely music pairs like wine. Just a a small example of the effect, the impact. You can tell just by John's voice, tone of voice, the impact a visit to Imagine Van Gogh has upon the visitor. And the good news this morning is the feature has been extended. It's a pleasure to welcome back Annabelle Moget to the program. Ms. Moget is the artistic director of Imagine Van Gogh. Annabelle, good morning and welcome back. (laughs) Good morning. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you with us again, and let's talk a little bit about the popularity of this show down at the Vancouver Convention Center, Annabelle. You knew, you and I talked about this, my gosh, back in April, when it was first being imagined, if you will, and booked and arranged for in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you envision at that time the degree of popularity that has uh, accompanied this uh, feature here in Vancouver? No, <laughs> really, really no. You know, I've never been to Vancouver. It will be, I, 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 will, I will go to Vancouver for the first time of my life in October this year. Uh, uh-huh. and, and I really appreciate um, how the people uh, understand what I did with this exhibition, how they 
um, get uh, inside the paintings and how they, 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 they translate for themselves, how they understand what I wanted to do. And that's just uh, incredible, absolutely incredible. And so the, then the, the support, and again, we're, t- we're talking about not the, the easiest of times to get out and about. Now, fortunately, here in British Columbia, Annabelle, we're a little looser in terms of restrictions than some other provinces like Ontario. Mm-hmm. But still, there has been a pandemic going on, and a lot of people have just been timid about going out. And yet, this Imagine Van Gogh exhibition has been full all the way through. That's amazing. I think it's probably one of uh, the best vaccines you can have against this uh, this virus, I think, you know. Uh, in France, sometimes we were talking about uh, culture against everything. And uh, I think it's important to understand that, you know, sometimes culture can help you uh, to get out, to, can help you to, to be yourself again. And, and, and I think we have so many difficulties, and as you said, uh, particularly in Vancouver, it was so hard that um, I think people need to get out, need to to do something else, and to be part of um, a kind of culture again, uh, to be connected back to to their feelings. And mm-hmm. uh, and and I think this kind of expedition of exhibition um, could help them to do this. And, I agree. and I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so Indeed, happy. And- it, it, as an artist, uh, Van Gogh is to this day appreciated for his feelings. He put an incredible amount of emotion into his work. Mm-hmm. So, and I've had the very good fortune. I've been a fan all my life. I'm married to an artist. Mm-hmm. So I've been to the Van Gogh yeah. Museum in Amsterdam. I've been to uh, places where I enjoyed uh, seeing his work in, in person. And yet, the Imagine Van Gogh exhibit here in Vancouver, Annabelle, is so much more than just walking through an art gallery where you see individual works of art mounted and framed and lit up and all of that stuff. When you walk into Imagine Van Gogh, it's a total immersion experience. Where were, where did you get the the in, inspiration for this, this approach to Van Gogh? I think that, you know, I don't think it's a woman's feeling, but it's not that difficult for me to translate the feeling I have in front of the painting. That's the most important thing. The second one is that I'm, I, I really have a, a special approach about art history, and I really want to respect every painter I'm talking about. And that's mm-hmm. really, really important for me. I don't want to be someone who, who just who just looks like an artist. I'm not an artist. I'm a director with Julien Baron. I'm working as a director, you know, and we really, the, the first movement we really want to show to the people is that there is no distance between them and those paintings. And right. I think the message <laughs> has been understood. <laughs> so the, the other thing that John mentioned in his little piece that we ran just before bringing you on was music. And again, mm-hmm. there uh, the challenge for the designer and and you're the artistic director was a to include music in the first place and then find the appropriate music as uh, mm-hmm. to to match the moods of the Van Gogh artwork. How did that process mm-hmm. evolve, and who got to make the final cut as to what music made it to the show? 
It's me. Okay. Well, good choices. I really do. I chose all the music of this uh, of this exhibition, and those music were the music I was probably listening in my head while while I was discovering those paintings. Really. So oh, so you 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 were hearing the music uh, as you were putting the show together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really, it's easy for me. This is really easy for me. I understand that it could be difficult to understand, but when I'm in front of the painting, I hear the music, and I have to then to find it again. But yes, yes, really. That's why. Well, that's interesting. Exhibition is really a part of a part of me. In fact, it's really a part of me. Interesting, because it has said that art has the ability to move people, and if you can, if you're the sort of a human being who can look at a picture or a painting and hear music because of what the painting tells you, that's a phenomenal mm-hmm. experience, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and you, you you need to have trust in yourself to do that, and yes. and to trust enough to show it to the, to everyone, and uh, sometimes it's a really hard challenge. But uh, I think it's probably the best way to help people understanding what you want them to, to, to feel and to help, to help them feeling. Wonderful. Something. You know, I, well, we I, should... I, I really... I just wanted, Annabelle, I just wanted to remind our listeners that uh, if you want to go to this exhibit, which is now extended until September, you Mm -hmm. must buy your tickets online. And uh, vancouver.imaginevango.com is where you go, or just Google Imagine Van Gogh in Vancouver, and don't forget to take it in and enjoy it. Annabelle Moget is the artistic director of Imagine Van Gogh. Congratulations on a fabulous exhibit (laughs) and on being extended through (laughs) September, Annabelle. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.